Hey, Josh. Hey, Nate. How are you doing this week? I am doing pretty great. Uh, just went out to play on the outdoor rink with uh, my kids for lunchtime, and uh, it's the first day our rink is skatable, so pretty excited about that. And uh, awesome. yeah, life is good. Cool. Uh, question about that on like snow and up north and whatnot. <laughs> Do you guys have? Uh, I I learned about it in college, but broom ball do you guys oh like um like curling no i know you have curling i know there's the curling but like it's like more like hockey but people play with a ball and they use brooms yeah do they do it like on a field like a grass field yeah probably or out in the street or whatever just yeah or a parking lot that type of thing yeah there's, there's a few people that play it but it's not not super popular definitely not uh, to the level that ice hockey is like the real deal <laughs> the real deal yeah because I, I think I saw it on a, it was like going on on a TV show, and I commented on it to my wife, and she's just like, "What broom ball? That's not a thing." And I'm like, "No, look, did you see that? They're they're not playing with like hockey sticks. It's a broom and a ball." Yeah. And uh, anyway, so she's from the Midwest, like in Nebraska, and just she's like, "No, we didn't have that." I think they didn't. There wasn't a lot of hockey there either. So. Anyway. Uh. Well, we'll have to figure out what part of the world broomball comes from. How are uh, how are <laughs> well, things with you? Well, well, I did. Well, I didn't know college. That's what I said. Like, so I went oh, to okay. college in Pennsylvania, at, uh, and and there was actually like a, I think a dormitory called like <clears throat> broomball. <laughs> oh, crazy! Okay, so, so people Maybe played it in uh, Pennsylvania, like <laughs> in this small town in Pennsylvania where Josh went to college, or um, large town. Yeah. How are things with you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's, um, yeah, the things, things are moving well this, this month. I mean, the month just closed. So we're now into February and, uh, had a pretty good month, uh, like, you know, business wise, health wise, all these other things. I kind of did set out goals. Like we talked about, we had some goals and, um, I would say, doing fairly well on all of them so nice nice that's good news how about you how are cool. your goals my goals are going okay uh i definitely haven't walked as no, um, as much as i should have i think this week i'm it's uh, thursday today when we're recording and i think i've walked twice already this week so i got some catching up to do okay. and but i've read more books than i set out to do so that's good. Nice. But, yeah. And that's actually kind of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, <clears throat> so I've been reading a couple of books and uh, some blog posts and whatnot. And uh, one of them was um, this uh, Saster uh, episode that you had sent over uh, where they interviewed the co-founders of Drift. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have like a whole, there's like a expanded version of that as well. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes, but um one of their kind of takeaways from there was um, that you shouldn't worry about your competition. You, you know, once you kind of have chosen your spot, you should just, you know, buckle down and, you know, beat them kind of thing. And, right. uh, you know, I, I hear that, like, you know, like, don't worry about your competition. But, like, I don't know. Inside, I'm still scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that because you're in this, like, earlier starting phase? So you're just kind of thinking... 
like you are trying to, you know, wedge yourself into a certain gap and you're just like, Oh gosh, I hope they're not working on that. And that gap's not going to close. It's like, is it that? Uh, Yeah. Like there's, there's some of that, but even like, um, I don't know. I caught myself the other day. Some, some person followed me on Twitter and they were doing something in the testing space. And uh, I noticed that from their profile on Twitter. So I was like, Oh, I'm going to go check out what they do. And Mm -hmm. before I know it, I've spent like 20 minutes of like bartering with myself, explaining why (laughs) this guy is not a threat. And like, I'm like, I have something wrong with me. Like what's going on here? Um, So (laughs) I don't know. Like, I think I I understand the strategy and the window of opportunity and all of that. But um, I think the feel, the fear is still real. And I don't know if that like, is that something that goes away or is that like, um, you know, maybe I need to do more, uh, planning and write it down and that will help me. I don't know. Uh, I definitely think it goes away. I think it's a natural impulse to, especially when you're building something, cause it's sort of like you already have your, your own doubts about like, who's going to find this useful. How's this going to do this? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, so you already are unsure on how far this can go. Right. And then, then you layer on someone else and then it's like, Oh, are they further ahead? Are they, I already am not confident the size of this peanut or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now if they're doing that and I am already thinking it's only like 10 units big, are they just going to take all 10 units for themselves? Right. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a very natural thing. Um, but I would just say over time it does, it does subside. You'll always like look at a thing and be like, you know, mm-hmm. are they copying me? Are they, where are they, what else are they working on? Just like it's, natural i think competitive nature and just human mm-hmm. curiosity with that type of thing um so. yeah that, that's interesting so like would you say that like as you got bigger like would you or maybe like even now do you like keep tabs on your competition and like you know almost have them like mapped out on a chessboard kind of thing as to who's doing what um or do you not really pay too much attention to it and you just kind of you know focus on your customers kind of deal uh, I'd say it's mostly the latter. Like I, it's probably one of those things where I'll look every once in a while, maybe on their homepage, but mm. it's, there were certain ones that I like got on my radar that were more on the rise. So I was like more aware, um, mm. but we also have a lot of data and in terms of like our sales process, we collect during the sales calls like who else are they looking at so we could kind of see trends in general so Mm. um and like i said i think the biggest thing is is having gone through the reps of like does it really matter how many customers come to us and they actually aren't the competitor isn't really even like one of our technical competitors right or uh right maybe it's spreadsheets or just not doing anything right that competitive alternative. And then also you go from, for us, like the amount of work it takes to kind of get your programs up and running. There's, there is a, I wouldn't say like a super high switching cost, but a relatively high switching cost. So it's not like someone's going to just quit and move, you know, all of a sudden it would have to take a lot of inertia for a good customer that has everything running, switching the website, communicating with their, referral program people, all mm-hmm. those types of things. So, but that's stuff that builds up over time where you, your, your mental 
things like, oh, oh, crap, this could happen, or oh, they could leave any day, all these doubts and fears. Over time, you you go and it's like, okay, I've been doing this for two years. I've been doing this for a year. I've been doing it for six months. None of those fears have come through yet. So maybe I'm okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like just the experience over time kind of gets you to the place where you're a little bit more sure of yourself just by looking at the data. Right. Right. Like something like walking across a bridge, right? Like walking across a <laughs> bridge. The first time you're like, oh, but you do it 10 times. You're like, okay. Yeah, now no big it's deal. Just, there's no, it's not a big deal. I, I yeah. trust it. Now, hopefully, you're, you know, you're not, you're not going to be like, I'm going to close my eyes and do it. But, you know. <laughs> and no, that kind of makes sense. And I think like, like my consulting stuff has kind of been like that. The first while it was really scary. And now it's like, yeah, no problem. It's more of just, you know, going down and doing the work. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so another one that was a takeaway from this Saster Drift uh, discussion was um, after you've built what you think is your MVP, do not build anything else. It's a distraction until mm-hmm. you kind of have your your fit, I'm guessing, is kind of the idea. Um, <clears throat> I, I feel like that's a tough one for me because if I have if I built my core product on a Monday, on a Thursday, I'm going to be like, it's not sold yet. So like I need more features. Um, and, and maybe that's just a muscle of saying, Hey, I need to be focused on my marketing instead, um, instead of product. But, you know, are there things that you kind of tell yourself or guidelines you use to, um, help yourself with that? Like help myself, not just, just kind of continue to like get distracted and stray away. Is that, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this does probably also come with a level of, of experience where when you've done it and then and then you want to stick to it because of that conviction. So it's like if I want to make this bet, I'm going I'm going relatively all in on it, right? So whether you're building that thing and I'm like building on a hunch at least and giving it enough time and enough reps, like I'm saying, it's reps from even from a marketing perspective, like enough people have seen the landing page and also have they seen it? Maybe you don't know how long it's going to take for them to convert. Do they visit twice? Do they visit three times? Did I just launch it on the wrong day and no one saw it? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so stepping back and just thinking about kind of those pieces and like letting it bake, right? Like letting it like, and I, I think we've told the story before, but I think in that phase, like I got, really lucky early on with referral rock where when i first turned on the paid version it was like within three days i got one person to pay and it was amazing right but then like the next one didn't happen for like three weeks but i maybe i would have never made it to week three if that first one didn't happen in in three days (laughs) that's true and i think like i've really seen that with status list too where it's like and i I think that's it kind of gets back to your thing of just having experience makes it a little bit easier um, like with status list, for example, it took a long time to get my first money out of that. Um, but now like it just, I know where the levers are to make it, um, do more things and what, what seems to be working. Um, and so then it's not so, it's not such a thing that I'm paranoid about. Yeah. I think there's an element of like, I've seen this show before, right? Like I know mm. how this stuff works. And then that, which again, builds, builds your own sense of confidence toward this like people are going to pay for this eventually i know it provides value i did some research i've talked to some people like this is it's just about getting it in front of the right 
person or taking the time or getting exposure from a marketing front uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to see what you've built or whatever. So, Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So one of the uh, the other books I read was The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Ornstein. Ben Ornstein, I believe it is. Um, uh, Horowitz, or, I think. Ben Horowitz. Ben Horowitz. Um, and uh, he has a lot of good things to say, uh, at least I, in my opinion, about uh, larger companies. Um, and one of his interesting takeaways was that not everything is measurable. So, you know, you have an employee that's doing, we were just talking about this before the, the we got started recording here. You have someone that's doing, you know, let's say marketing or uh, sales. Um, it's not necessarily um, measurable how well they're doing. Sure, you can measure their their output, like how many customers are they acquiring? You know, what's the metrics on this landing page? Um, but there's some intangibles there. And so how do you deal with that as a manager and as a CEO to be able to, you know, make sure people are doing the right things and hold them accountable, um, but also not, you know, get bogged down in, well, this stat needs to move by, you know, this many numbers, otherwise it's no good. That's hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I think it, there, that, that there's a lot of relying on your gut, right? And just like the, the it's sort of like, how do you measure culture, right? How do you measure a brand? How do you measure like, people know this stuff exists, but it's like, you, there's not a quantifiable measurement necessarily you can easily put on this. Right. So, um, especially with people, there's like a, I think, I think there's like, you have to go with sort of a, a level of feeling with working with people, right? Like, you, you know, especially now it's like, can you, or uh, here's the, here's, here's a good example. Back in the days where people had to work in the office and stuff like that. And there were less computer types of things to like know if someone's checking in code or whatnot. Like if someone's, someone might be thinking about it, someone might be like, you were talking about going for a walk and like thinking about a marketing strategy, doing all this stuff, but you may not see the result and you might, you might see, you know, five words on a page, but you don't know how many reps and iterations and versions that came before that. Right. Maybe, they work in pen and paper and you're not going to be like, let me see your notebook. Right. There's not, <laughs> but when you see the end product, it's like, okay. Um, so, so those are kind of some, I don't know, potential intangible things. Like you don't know how people work. Like you mm-hmm. don't know how much, how much time and shower thoughts or dog walk thoughts they put into <laughs> some things, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think that's one of the, the anecdotes that Ben gives is just like, um, with some of the intangible things, it's like, I know it when I see it. Um, mm-hmm. I know that that's good because I've seen it and I know that that's good or I know that that's bad. Um, yeah. And I guess you, ultimately you do have to use your judgment, right? Yeah. And I think also being open to like when you're like make bad judgments, right? Like learning from those errors in judgment and realizing that uh, something is a certain way and you kind of have to make a decision to make a judgment call on something like, Hey, you know what? Like Nate has a beard and I just don't like working people with beards. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously that's irrational, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think you have to start somewhere, right? It's one of these things where you're hopefully you're open to tuning it. And I feel like mm-hmm. especially managers come into it from two sides. You either, and, and a lot of relationships, you either come from a, I'm going to, like you have to earn my trust or I give you trust and then you have to uh, 
disprove that I should have given you that trust, right? And I feel like mm-hmm. people end up, especially with managing people and building teams on either side of the spectrum. And I think either one is okay. You just have to know that you're like kind of zoning in and figuring out where that is, as long as you're open to moving another direction, or maybe mm-hmm. you stick it in the middle and you kind of like, everyone has a different way, but not get so jaded by the one person that broke your trust. And now, you know, you're zooming yeah. all the way to the opposite side of the spectrum. So uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And I think that's just, a, it kind of comes back to managing people is just hard. Um, you're not going to be able to have it perfect every time. And you're just going to have to kind of do the best you can in some respects. Yeah. And, and some of it too, is like, you want the world to be a certain way, right? Mm. Like, and those are definitely some things I've learned or I've changed, like in terms of, you know, wanting to give someone an opportunity, but, and, and keep keeping to work with someone and believing that people have a certain amount of potential. And I agree with all of those things, but then there are times in people's lives where maybe they don't want to do those things, right? Maybe they don't want to do the work you think that they're capable of. And it could be, it's, it's not necessarily even a like talent thing. It just might be a timing in their life thing, right? So there's like mm-hmm. a lot of other factors and I've learned to kind of be more, I don't know this, I call this the philosophy of like, like giving people opportunities and leaving, leaving the door open, but not like pulling them through. Cause I've like tried yeah. to pull people through before, right? Like, Oh, I think you're filled with potential. You could do all these things. We're going to give you all this training, going to work with you. And then, but then they're They're not going to say no, but they might drag their feet or they may not be ready or they're doing other things, but you want to give people opportunity. Right. So like, I, yeah. I always want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. I, I find that really difficult when there's someone who who appears to have a lot of a lot of potential but doesn't want to take hold of that. But yeah, like you said, you, you can't make people do things. And if you try, it's just gonna waste both of your time. So I think that's a good one. Um another one in the the hard thing about hard things was um kind of like goal setting and then uh executing. And so one of the things that they that he said in there was um, basically before you do anything in the business, um, and that's like, you know, I want to create this new product. I want to spin out this new thing, write down what the positive outcome looks like and how you'll get there. And the point is not that you will stick to that plan at all costs. The point is that you've planned for success and, um, maybe you have to pivot, but at least you had a plan to start with that you could get everyone on board with. You weren't just kind of, you know, wandering out in some direction, hoping that, you know, good things will happen to you sort of thing. Right. Right. And I think you've talked a bit about your way of planning and whatnot. And I think it kind of lines up a bit with what you do. Um, Do you want to explain a bit about what you do and if this agrees with what you're, what you do? Uh, Sure. Although my, (laughs) our planning has changed a bit lately. So that might be a whole different story because like we used to do okrs a bit but Mm. let me narrow in on something else that you mentioned which i think is important um one of the things that we have been doing more of recently is yeah like looking at that positive outcome and i think that just comes to like where are you planning and what are the at least when you start don't have this wide open canvas and you can go all these directions and follow you know, you're following your nose, you're following all these different 
threads of things and you just end up like, well, how did I get here? What happened? I was just <laughs> sort of going like, so it's like putting up sort of boundaries and directions, right? Mm. So at least a saying like, I'm willing to go this far and this is where I'm, this is the general direction I'm walking and where I'm going towards. And it could still be somewhat wide, uh, but mm-hmm. at least it's like directional and hopefully acknowledging of boundaries. So one thing we've done is there's the, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the pod before, but if you heard of Amazon's like PR FAQ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe explain a little bit for our listeners. So I like this one a lot because it spins. So let's say you're planning a project or something like that. So what you do is you write what would be a one pager, like a like a press release. So it's like, you know, product sonar did da, 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 and it did made this big impact and all these other things. And like, here's all the things it did for its customers. So it really paints the light of like, what is the benefit to the customers? Like if, if this was a press release going out, like mm-hmm. it sort of nails that positive direction. Like what is the impact? What is the benefit? What does it do? Like it has the natural way of that. Everyone knows what those things look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the FAQ section is just a broad section of like, okay, like, how are we going to do this? Where's it going to sit in the product? Like, how is this different than the last feature? You know, things that don't necessarily make it part of that core goal, positive outcome narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe there's some other things like, what are the trade-offs? Like, what are we doing instead or whatever? But I like there's a lot of these little, um, I would say like templates for those types of things. You know, there's like start yeah. with why and there's all these things, but <laughs> that's definitely one that sticks sticks with me as well. Yeah. And I think what's really good about that one is that it's focused on the customer and what's the changes to the customer. It's not focused on how the business is going to change because sometimes you could have like, I know, especially in engineering, you can have like very radical internal changes to support that new goal. But if the new goal doesn't have uh, much of a customer impact, then it doesn't really matter that much in some senses, right? Even if, um, you know, why, why are we doing this to make the, the customer's life better? And if it's not for the sake of the customers, then, you know, what is the point? Um, right. I think that's really helpful. So would you say like to keep you from drifting? Uh-huh. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> bad. That's bad. It's horrible. Uh, dad jokes are welcome around here. Yeah. Well, well, one side point on that too is I think we'll also write them for internal stuff. So it could be as much as say, doing a like scaling project, like a a refactoring Mm. and a scaling project for something. Yes, there's going to be the benefit to the customer, but the press release is probably not, you know, it can be slighted towards like product sonar can now scale these types of things. But the, you know, the customer benefit might be a little, a little fluffier, Um, like, Mm. okay, better performance, but they may not care, but it's sort of like, and the internal team will be able to get more sleep and stuff like that. So you could still spin it, for like an internal thing sure. in that style, but it's helpful to like that, that style, I think really definitely helps people get out of just pure requirements mode, pure, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just like, what is, what is the feature type of thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting though. Cause that often kind of goes against what like a project manager or an engineer would like, right. Often, often a project manager or an engineer would like, you know, I want the button to look and look this way. I would like this, um, this layout. I would like this, um, thing to happen when I click this button, but having it a little bit more fuzzy and focusing on the customer, 
allows for some creativity, but also ensures you get the outcome that you're going for, especially if you have um, more people working on it. You know, if it's not just you, maybe it's a team of people that have to coordinate to make this thing happen. Yeah, I like that a lot. It kind of gets back to the top of what you brought, like why you brought this this instance up uh, in terms of being uh, like in the in the business or on the business, right? Like mm-hmm. in the business is like coming up with the solutions, coming up with the more granular, okay, it needs a button, it needs this type of thing. But when you're talking about from a strategic sense, like on the business and uh, the direction that this is going, and then it allows for, oh, actually, you know what? We don't even have to solve this with code. Like we could solve it with a different way. We can, we can, you know, solve it with a, like a marketing press release. I don't know, but it it starts to kind of have that level of thinking that is not like stuck inside. Yeah, for sure. Do we have time for one more or do you want to wrap it here? Uh, let's go. Let's go. What else you got? All right. Um, one that I caught that was kind of interesting was that um, a CEO doesn't need to be overly positive. He just, he or her just needs to have a plan. Um, the en- the employees can share the weight of the difficult times and be also motivated by that and come up with creative solutions to that problem. And so I guess the idea here is that, you know, some people, some CEOs think they need to, yeah, portray a front, right? Like I am the, mm. I am the solution of all things and everything is great and there's no problems here. But um, when, when they're able to talk about the problems and talk about, well, we're going to do this and this strategy to be able to deal with it, I need you guys to help me execute and come up with creative ways to do that. I think that can be really motivating for uh, employees and, and stakeholders. What do you think? No, I, I like that one too. I think it's definitely like when this I think this book is fairly older. Like, I think it might've been in like the late 2000s, like, like 2008, 2009, maybe timeframe when it came out. Let me see. Um, Keep talking. I'll find it. (laughs) And I was just thinking, like, I think it was born out of an age where, you know, more CEOs were like trying to really impress the culture, right? Like, it's like, oh, this is a, like, hey, we're a mission-driven. We're like, we're pushing this boulder up the hill and I've got to put on this happy, positive face. I am the the king, you know, the the key cheerleader that has to, but, but I think that takes away from the potential realism, right? So like, there's going to be crappy times. There's going to be times things are not going well and people would much rather out of their leaders have, I think, for them to truly follow and have faith in the leader. Like if you're just rah-rah all the time, you're going to, you're going to lose that trust or that authenticity with them. So, but what they are going to rely on to you is the plan. Like, okay, what are we going to do? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's where the like real leadership kind of comes into play. It's not, it's not like just leading the cheers. (laughs) It's like, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? Like, the, there's a lot of weight and they should be, I want someone definitive making decisions. I don't care if we're right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe eventually if you're like wrong 10 times in a row, they're going to lose faith also, but <laughs> uh, that's a different story, but at least yeah. like, yeah, you gotta, I think you, they're going to rely on you for that plan. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's 2014. So uh, that'd be uh, six, eight years old, nine years old. Mm. Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, fairly old book. And yeah, I think you're right that it does it, it does help people to trust you 
And I think when you were talking about like being wrong a number of times in a row, um, like just because you come up with a plan doesn't mean that that's the plan for forever, right? Like if, if you come up with a plan, if the problem um, shows itself on a Monday, you come up with a plan on the Tuesday and present to the company. Um, and on Thursday, someone comes up with a better idea and tells you about it. You can change. Like that's, yeah. that's a reasonable thing to do, right? But just that you have a direction that you want to take and um, yeah, at least some solution to the problem and that people can get behind and reasons why, like you said. Yeah, and I think it can't come out of nowhere. I think there is still that level of like buy-in mm-hmm. you need to get. So what what I'm learning to do more often with planning is not to just like slap the plan on the on the desk and be like, "All right, Nate, let's go execute this." It's <laughs> it's a col- like I'm leading, but it's still a collaborative process. So I might throw out the first draft and be like, "Hey, what do you think of this?" Like shoot mm-hmm. this down. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm wrong. Like, let's discuss this thing. So even if yep. there is a planning process and I am still leading it and I'm still like, you know, fostering and saying, I think we should do this. I think we need a little more research here. Hey, Nate, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Chris, what do you think? Like getting other people involved in a leadership standpoint. So they have some buy-in and it isn't still just smacking it on the ground, but that is like the leading on, yeah. on both the coming up with it, walking the walk, and uh, kind of in the direction. Yeah, totally. And when you talk about like getting people's feedback, um, what I think is really interesting about that is that that kind of insinuates that people are doing like one-on-one meetings. Um, and that was something that that Ben really stressed in the book was like that one-on-one meetings are so were so important to him um, that like doing them weekly or biweekly. And that it was the time for the the employee or the the person lower on the totem pole to be able to um, voice their opinions and um, talk about things that don't really fit well into a meeting, like criticizing the CEO's mm-hmm. plan. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was such an important thing that he was ready to. I think there was someone who hadn't done a one on one with any other team members for four or six months, and he was ready to fire mm-hmm. that person like the next day if they didn't do it. Um, yeah. What, what do you think of that? Is that, does that seem right? Does that seem a little off? Uh, it seems a little off now, again, thinking about the year, right. Thinking mm-hmm. about, cause I think like a lot of his experiences were born from that post 2000 startup period, right. And mm-hmm. however many years it took him to write the book. So, you know, there weren't zooms, there weren't like just the way I think work culture has changed. Um, I do think one-on-ones are important, I do think like, you know, there's a lot of different styles of ones and things like that. And there definitely should be feedback cycles and this thing. But like, I I think the collaboration stuff was not as available there. So even when I was talking about the planning Mm that I do oftentimes, it's like, here's a draft, here it is in a Google doc or a confluence. And I actually go like, here's the areas I want comments on. Like, here's the questions I have. And then people are doing it asynchronously. So I also think you foster a, collaborative environment so it doesn't have to be one-on-one or mm-hmm. that it's okay to disagree because you see that the big draft thing over there it's not <laughs> going out it's not in public yeah there's not a hey i'm disagreeing with the ceo like uh out in a public meeting like we don't right. have those public meetings it's not me up there presenting on a slide deck the plan and that's the first time they're seeing it so mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of those things and those cultural like motions within businesses have changed so 
Yeah, and maybe that's also with like a high, uh, like a a higher structured environment, right? Like some some environments are very much like that, right? You have meetings, you have reports, and stuff like that. Um, whereas if you're working more of an asynchronous kind of like you are with all the remote employees you have, um, like that kind of changes things too. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, and those are like when you're a bigger company, those are hard habits to break. Like those are just that's how we do things. Those are that's mm-hmm. the culture, and I think. Ben is famous for saying, I think it's his quote, like, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Was that in there? I think that's something. Yeah. I, I, that, that quote is familiar, but I'm not sure if that was him who said it, but we'll have to figure out who said it. Yeah. I'll have to look that up later. <laughs> that's great. Well, did but you have no, any? It's a really good book. I loved that yeah. book. Like, yeah, cause you, it's a good you, narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. That was like kind of the interesting thing about it because it was all, it was all kind of his stories, and then you know what he learned from it. It wasn't so much like a, you know, do this and then this and then your, you know, your life will be better kind of thing. Yeah, cool, good stuff. Did uh, you have anything you want to talk about yet before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. I think we wandered in the desert a bit for like talking about competition, talking about, uh, you know. I don't know, CEO things and leadership things, um, planning, sort of a big grab bag, but yeah. fun stuff, fun stuff to yeah. talk about. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. All right. See you later, Nate. Bye. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you want to chat with us, we're on Twitter. I'm at Nate Bosher and Josh is at JLogic. If you're a new listener, uh, check out some of our most popular episodes, episode 52, seven years to 22 MRR and zombie startups or episode 30 review sites are a necessary evil and hacks to get around them. Thanks again.